in a dystopian future Los Angeles of 2019, in which synthetic humans known as replicants are bioengineered by the powerful Tyrell Corporation to work on off-world colonies, a fugitive group of replicants led by Roy Batty escapes back to Earth, and burnt-out cop Rick Deckard reluctantly agrees to hunt them down. Then, 30 years later, Kay, a replicant Blade Runner, uncovers a secret that threatens to instigate a war between humans and replicants. This week, I watched Blade Runner 2049. So that also means I had to rewatch Blade Runner, which means I also had to watch the Blade Runner theatrical cut again as well. I stopped just short of watching the Blade Runner Blackout 2022 animated short, but I did read about it. So I've been inundated in the world of films for the past few days, and seeing as this is 2019, the year of the Blade Runner, I feel like it's time to dive into the series and see what it has to offer. And one of the most powerful themes in the Blade Runner films that I think is a little understated than some of more of its uh, some of its more larger themes is that of nostalgia and the power that it has on the human mind. This week for my movies betters 19th episode we are covering Blade Runner the final cut and Blade Runner 2049 Memory and Memento Mori. Officer K, D6-3.7. Let's begin. Ready? Yes, sir. Recite your baseline. In blood black, nothingness began to spin. A system of cells interlinked within cells interlinked within cells interlinked within one stem. Fuck off, good job. And dreadfully distinct against the dark, a tall white fountain played. Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you long for having your heart interlinked? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you dream about being interlinked? Interlinked. What's it like to hold your child in your arms? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you feel that there's a part of you that's missing? Interlinked. Interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Why don't you say that three times? Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. We're done. Part 1, And the Lord Remembered Rachel So Blade Runner, in terms of analysis, is a Herculean task, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that the plot of the film, the original film, was studio-mandated, uh, with a studio-mandated theatrical cut, and the director's cut are so drastically different. For fans, there are many differing opinions on uh, which cut should be considered canon, some fans like the narration and the happy ending delivered by the theatrical cut, while others, like myself, have become bigger fans of Scott's original vision and its bleaker tone. This in no way means that I dislike the, the theatrical cut, I just find that the ending of Scott's cut fits more in line with the tone of the rest of the film. And that the, the silence in place of near constant narration sort of blankets the film in the Nora trappings of the films that inspired it, like Maltese Falcon and Third Man. 
And the really interesting thing that Denny Villeneuve does in his sequel, Blade Runner 2049, is to play to both of these groups. And I feel like he makes it really unclear which canon was actually canon. In fact, it feels like it might even be a little bit of both. However, I think that uh, since Scott is sort of the driving force behind this, um, this sequel film, the director's cut version is the one that is the most canon, at least as far as I could tell. So for the most part today, I will be completely ignoring the theatrical cut of Blade Runner um, and assuming that is not canon. We'll be talking mainly about the final cut, uh, which is my favorite version of the film as well. So nostalgia is a powerful emotion. The word nostalgia itself comes from the learned formation of a Greek compound, consisting of the words nostos, meaning homecoming, and a Homeric word relating to the, or a characteristic of Homer's writing, algos, meaning pain or ache or suffering. And it was coined by a 17th century medical student uh, to describe the anxieties displayed by Swiss mercenaries fighting away from home. It also became an important trope in the Romanticism writing movement and uh, art movement. The idea of melancholy or other forms of what we now call depression. For the most part, smell, taste, touch, memory, all these things can invoke strong nostalgia, along with music, weather, and of course, film. Blade Runner 2049 is a film that almost loses itself in a nostalgia that is unique to its own story. Uh, being a sequel that was released 35 years after its predecessor, it attempts to evoke a sense of nostalgic waxing, not just on its audience, but on its characters. This theme comes up a lot in the film. Kay's search for his memories, Sapper Morton remembering the miracle he witnessed, Wallace's desire to rebuild the Tyrell Corporation anew, Deckard's hermitage penance and his long-lost love Rachel, complete with her bones and skull and even a replicant clone. What is most interesting to me is how inside of all of this, there's a common interlinking Interlinked. theme that goes even further than nostalgia. And that is Memento Mori. So Memento Mori is a medieval Latin Christian theory and a practice of reflection on mortality. But the term has come to mean something a bit more in the modern age. Uh, you see, Memento Mori also refers to objects that portend, warn, or are remembrances or reminders of death and mortality. Blade Runner is littered with these type of objects, from Gaff's origami animals, Kay's wooden horse, uh, Rachel's skull, Sapper Morton's med kit, J.F. Sebastian's dolls, and really the replicants themselves, which serve as sort of a walking, breathing memento mori to the whole of this dying human race, a reminder that their time is up. And this is made clear by the events of Blade Runner 2049, and the revelation that Tyrell had created a replicant that could birth its own young, while the movie itself chooses to focus on how that affects the slave status of replicants and would upset the delicate balance between man and machine, it also serves as a reminder of evolution and the pinpoint moment of death for the human species. So there is this fear and hatred for replicants which is based on that reminder. They are symbol of humanity's end, memento mori. And Villanueva goes even further with this now, using Memento Mori to foreshadow to the audience. One great example is when we see Joy, Kay's Wallace Corp-made AI wife, wearing the same sort of jacket that was worn by the Nexus 6, 6 replicant Zahora in the original film. The same clear jacket that Zora is killed in by Deckard only moments after we first see it. 
If keen-eyed viewers are watching this, they might be inclined to think something bad is about to happen to Joy, and they would be right. Only minutes after we first see Joy in the jacket, she is killed when Wallace Henchman Love destroys her emanator. Watch this scene again. Notice that we are given just enough time to go through the thoughts, oh, hey, that's that jacket. Oh, yeah, Zahora died in that jacket. Oh, shit, bad guys are here. By the time we can realize what the director has done, the moment has passed if we did recognize it at all. And I know that I didn't think about it, uh, the connection, until later while I was writing this piece. Another interesting way that 2049 used Memento Mori was to signal the impending arrival of a particular character, sort of like a leitmotif. And this character is Love. Love is a Nexus 9 replicant, like K, though it's never uh, specifically stated in the film that K is a Nexus 9, but he is, I guess, according to the internet, and the right-hand man, so to speak, of Neander Wallace. She acts as Wallace's enforcer, and throughout the film is a villainous foil to K and somewhat portrayed as reflections of each other, uh, though the film doesn't really go far enough with this theme, I don't think, to for it to really stick. But one thing I did notice was Love being connected to many of these instances of Memento Mori, from her showing Kay the old Tyrell file of Deckard and Rachel, to her taking the bones and killing a morgue assistant with a brutal chop to the back of the neck, mind you, to her appearing moments after we see the clear Zora jacket and bringing the death portended. In the scene when Wallace confronts Deckard with Rachel's bones, the skull becomes a portent for Love, who seconds later emerges from the darkness and onto the screen, and the scene ends with her vicious execution of the Rachel clone once Deckard has refused them. Love is like an angel of death. In fact, Wallace refers to her as his first angel, and the director has given you these visual cues through objects to detect when that death is coming. Act 2. My ghost is whispering to me. Another sci-fi series which touched on the idea, on this idea, was Ghost in the Shell, specifically Sack and Sack Second Gig, a standalone complex. And in that, it was the idea of what they called external memory. Blade Runner and Ghost in the Shell are both derived from an aesthetic that was sort of crafted by William Gibson in his novel Neuromancer, which I highly suggest, and what is today usually referred to as cyberpunk. Both series are stylistically similar in many ways. Uh, in Ghost in the Shell, external memory is sort of like another term for Memento Mori, I guess a more technological version, and uh, not always about death, but uh, I do think a reminder of mortality. Uh, external memory in the Ghost in the Shell world means real and tangible things that provide a connection to memories in a future where everything is done electronically and via computers and the internet. An example from Ghost in the Shell is a, or a few examples are a catcher's baseball glove that one of the characters keeps with him, uh, the, or a watch that the main character, Motoko Kusanagi, has kept for numerous years. 
Uh, Kusanagi's subordinate and possible romantic interest for all you shippers out there, Bato, even asked her why she keeps it, and her answer is somewhat cryptic. But it basically comes down to the idea that these external pieces of memory remind us of who we really are. They inspire us to be our individual selves. And that individuality is constantly slipping away in a world where the line between life, real life, and artificial life is blurred. In Blade Runner 2049, Kay carries a piece of his own external memory in The Wooden Horse, which is actually an internal memory planted inside of him to make him more relatable to humans and, in effect, to make him more human. And it does make these Nexus Sixes more human uh, to have strong yet implanted memories, as we see with the Sapper Morton scene in his medic bag and his connection to this miracle, the birth of this child. There is an attachment to, there to a memory, or a real memory, not an implanted one. Uh, this one goes also the same for the child sock in the piano, and even Rachel's bones, further blurring that line of distinction between human and artifice, alluding to the series' tagline and the Tyrell Corporation's marketing slogan, more human than human. Morton has become human through human experiences. He saw a miracle, yes, but it was more than that. He lived a life, and that means memories, some good, some bad, but all important uh, to being the sum of those experiences. In a way, 2049 goes out of its way to make the replicants more human than the humans in the Blade Runner world. In fact, Brendan Hodges, a, a writer on Roger Ebert's website, makes a good argument in a 2017 piece that Love is the most human character in the film and at the very least, the most relatable. He writes, played by Sylvia Hoax in an alternating currents of ice and fire, love is the echo of Rutger Hauer's Roy Batty from the original Blade Runner. Like Roy, love is a synthetic replicant and a villain designed to magnify the central concerns of what it means to be human on a grand canvas. In 1982, Roy gave a vengeful sermon on the, on the inevitable mortality of all life, confronting us with the fact that we all must die. In turn, love confronts us with the deep conflicts of character that we all possess and, that society and the society that reinforces them. He also points out that when Wallace is about to murder a newborn replicant early in the film, tears stream down love's face. To love, this replicant woman is her family, her kin, and she stands in motionless, quiet agony, watching this murder. To intervene, to save her, is a barrier she cannot transcend, but she experiences the human feelings of pain and empathy. Her tears come seconds before the violent display takes place, in anticipation, but clearly not surprise. What is really strange here is that Kay is probably the second most human character in the film. So it definitely seems that great pains were taken, as I said, by Villeneuve to uh, have his replicants be viewed through this lens. And that is because the replicants, and androids in general, are memento mori for all humans. Hence the years and years and seemingly endless supply of robot-themed or doll-themed science fiction and horror stories. We as humans struggle with the idea of what they are and how they should be viewed. Is a doll a human? Should it be treated as human? Should it be a slave? Is it only intended to serve humans, then be disposed, retired? At the same time that we are driven away in revulsion at the Uncanny Valley, we are drawn in by the human qualities a puppet can possess. Because we are frightened of the evolution we know is coming. The end of human dominance, the end of the planet's resources, the rich and powerful fleeing towards space, the next thing that will take our place as self-proclaimed master of Earth. 
Now, I like to think about my favorite scene and maybe the most famous scene in the original film, The Death of Roy Batty. The first time I really sat down and got a chance to analyze Blade Runner was when I was in the hospital for a few days years ago. To spare you all the details, I'll just say that I was heavily drugged uh, by the hospital and ended up watching Blade Runner three or more times as it was being replayed through the night. It was a theatrical cut and on television, but it didn't matter because what got through to me in my drug-induced state was this idea that Batty wasn't the villain of the film at all, and in particular, the final confrontation scene into his death, like tears in rain, that particular scene. Um, all he wanted to do was to enjoy his last moments of life, a life that was pre-programmed to end at a specific time. And Deckard was the bad guy. Deckard, cold and cruel, hunts him down, only realizing his cruelty at the very end when he has been effectively bested by Batty. And yet, Batty spares his life and saves his life. When he realizes there is no way to stop this shortened lifespan, Batty makes the choice not to kill Deckard, but instead to impart his memories onto Deckard like a sort of external memory, or again, a living, breathing memento mori. The compassion and lust for life that Batty shows is in direct comparison to the lonely, depressed, and bitterly aggressive Deckard, a man with seeming contempt for everything around him, a man who sexually assaults Rachel, possibly even rapes her, and indiscriminately murders the Nexus Sixes without ever thinking if he should, that is, until the end. And in the case of the other models, Zora, Leon, and Pris, each retiring leads Deckard closer and closer to the final judgment that what he's been doing is wrong. Now, if you subscribe to the idea that Deckard is a replicant, which Ridley Scott says he intended, then it makes more sense he would begin to uh, relate with the Nexus Sixes. But if Deckard is indeed human, then this gets a bit more confusing to me. That in the first film, Deckard comes around to understanding that the so-called skin jobs deserve some humanity from actually humans, only to spend 30 years thinking the opposite. <clears throat> what would make more sense to me is that Replicant Deckard knows deep down inside that he might be or even is a replicant, and that his fear of that leads him to the mindset he has in 2049. And that's what's so brilliant, as I said at the top of this, because it kind of allows you to go into the movie from watching either film. It makes Deckard's actions in 2049 make sense in the context of both the theatrical and the final and the director's cut. Deckard's response to Kay's question of, is the dog real, says a lot. Deckard replies, ask him, as if to state, how can anyone actually say what is real and what is artificial, which is extremely telling, coming from a character with a history such as his. In the first film, Deckard is in an arc of empathy, acceptance, and redemption. As Dave Sims writes, Roy's final monologue is so magical because it's the moment where Deckard and viewers finally realize that the enemy is not the unstoppable monster he appeared to be, and that Blade Runner leaves its audience wondering whether Deckard's understanding that Roy is more than a machine is simply a human realization, or some deeper self-awareness that he himself is a replicant, which, according to screenwriter Hampton Francher, Fancher was intentional. And the brilliant thing that Villanevo did in 2049 wasn't to ask if the replicants are real or even to ask if any of us are real. 
2049, we're wrestling with the very idea of reality itself and what actually defines real. For instance, when Kay is tasked with finding and eliminating Rachel's child, he states, I've never retired anything with a soul before or anything that was born, which clearly sets up a sort of hierarchy of life worth in the Blade Runner universe. That means Kay has an awareness of the world and that the, that the older models lack, a burden of knowledge. He is aware of his own fakeness, his fake memories. He's even unsure if the love that his AI girlfriend Joy has for him is code rather than feeling. These deep human emotions are shown to the audience, but with subtextual and subliminal nuance, and they help the audience relate more to Kay as a character, effectively flipping the ideas of the first film into a new vision that takes steps to look further than the first. Look at the human characters compared to the replicants. Lieutenant Joshi and all her all-consuming fears of change to the status quo, Deckard's bitter hermitage in the face of the loss of his wife and child, Neander Wallace, just about everything about Neander Wallace screens in human from the yellow hues which signified danger in nature of his ancient temple-like offices, his self-imposed blindness, I think, I'm not sure, I kind of thought it was supposed to be like techno blindness, like he did it on purpose, and now he's aided by robotic drone eyes that drift around the subjects he's looking at, or just his psychotic god complex and the belief that he is the father to the replicants. Yet the only character that weeps is a replicant, yet the only character that continually shows compassion is a replicant. We've seen this before, in fact, in the original Blade Runner film. We're in the midst of Deckard and Batty's final confrontation, Batty shouts to Deckard, asking him, Aren't you supposed to be good? A question that is as much a challenge to Deckard as it is to the audience. Who is more human? The human or the replica? Act 3. That was irrational of you, not to mention unsportsmanlike. The 1982 film Blade Runner opens with huge sweeping shots of ominous and vast futuristic buildings, glamorously accompanied by the breathy, etheric strains of Vangelis' brilliant soundtrack, as the tiny twin lights of Deckard's hovercar glide effortlessly through the skyline. We are at once confronted by the sheer beauty of human ingenuity and the great power of our species' achievement. This is a feeling that will quickly be ripped away as the camera descends down, 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 moving in closer and closer to the ground, and we see the very real face of that beauty, an ugly underbelly that is true reality upon closer inspection. This is a duality that plays heavily in the film, a double vision, and not only the contrast of characters and themes, but in the settings and world around those characters, set under stifling rains and flanked by oppressive neo-noir advertisements and bedazzled with a myriad of blinking lights, the buildings of Los Angeles hide beneath them the dysfunctional state of humanity in the year 2019. In 2049, however, things are a little bit different. One of the major issues that I have with Blade Runner 2049 lies in the film's attempt to recreate the aura that made the original so great. Mainly the differences between the world above and the world below in themes of replicant humanity 
and maybe most importantly, the effect that advertising has on us and its role in our lives in the future. That is because 2049 carries with it a subtext that sounds like it was written in a high school creative writing class. Advertising is bad, technology is bad, it's dehumanizing, etc, etc. Well, of course it is true that advertising and technology are all of these things. What stands in stark contrast to the theme of anti-capitalism is obvious product placement used to advertise while also rail against advertising. Like a giant Coke can, for instance. This happens throughout the film. A heavy-handedness, a perfection that was lacking in the first film. Which was in part what made the original so interesting. And in watching the film a second time, it becomes clear why 2049 won't ever be seen in the same regard as Blade Runner. In a very real sense, it seems that what the director has crafted is a sort of replicant of Blade Runner. The similar story beats a failed interrogation, being forced to hunt down an innocent, entering, a temple of, uh, entering the temple of the technocrat, the way that Kay is placed into the position of Deckard, the sparse use of vaguely Vangelis-sounding music, or actual Vangelis music, Hell, even Mackenzie's Davis's character Mariette is like a revolutionary prostitute who, on second viewing, I guess she's also a replicant, so that makes this even more cool. She waltzes in the story like, hey, I'm this film stand-in for Pris, and she pretty much is. It's actually quite brilliant, at least during the first viewing. As a longtime Blade Runner mark, I noticed these shout-outs, like I mentioned earlier, the Zora jacket, and was pleased, excited even. Watching a second time though, some of these callbacks come off more like 2049 took most of the original's plot and just added a new title at the top of the paper. However, that may be taking it a little bit too far. Because at the same time, it definitely pushes forward a lot of the ideas in Blade Runner and even builds on them in spectacular ways, like I said earlier. And another example, personal favorite of mine, actor Lenny James, who was also in uh, 24 Hour Party People. In our last episode, uh, he's a child-selling, slave-driving orphanage director. And another, of course, is Joy, Kay's AI wife, who is at face value a clumsy metaphor for our attachment to devices such as smartphones, televisions, and computers. But there's something deeper to Joy. Just like Kay, Joy wants to experience, wants to learn, and wants to have freedom. Most importantly, wants to be real and wants to be treated as if she is real. What's really cool is that through her experiences, with the viewer of the film, uh, we inside our heads decide whether she is real or not. And that makes Joy's death, if I guess we do decide she's real, uh, which wipes her from existence, have actual brutal weight. Joy is part of another interesting theme in 2049, and that is the double image. I talked about this a bit in my short episode on Kurosawa's High and Low, where the hero and villain faces are superimposed over each other via a pane of glass, which creates this ghostly visage that obscures each face from one another. This happens all over 2049, with Joy appearing seemingly from within Kay as he scans through DNA, or when she has sex with Kay via Mariette's body. And there are some other instances that I saw in my second viewing, which I thought I should also point out. The many different Joy advertisements that remind Kay of her artificial qualities, a rainy window that separates Josie and Kay from the outside world, even the microscope with which Kay discovers Rachel's serial number in a series of is a series of lenses being manipulated to change the image. 
But maybe the best one is the cells interlinked baseline test, an auditory double image. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. And when we see Dr. Anna Stelling inside of her bubble for the first time, her image, just like I mentioned above with High and Low, is doubled and mixed with Kay's, a foreshadowing of the film's big reveal that Anna is Deckard and Rachel's daughter. As Anna analyzes Kay's memory, she begins to cry, and seemingly over her shoulder, reflected in the glass, is the steadfast gaze of Kay, almost as if he's sitting in the same place as her, like the ill-fitting double images, obscured but recognizable. And like Deckard before him, Kay is just a passenger along for the ride on this journey. While integral to its coming to a conclusion, he is not the true hero in need of redemption. Deckard is, just as Batty was the true hero of Blade Runner. Once the image has been put back together, Kay's necessity of the image is over, and he fades away into the background. Final part, all these memories will be lost like tears in rain. Blade Runner 2049 is a film that took on the thankless task of being a sequel to a beloved 35-year-old cult classic and came out the other end as a truly interesting and enjoyable film that built upon the themes of its predecessor without becoming a joke or a parody of itself. The performances are across the board great, and Roger Deakins' cinematography is, as always, a thing to behold. It is colorful, yet bleak. It doesn't try to do too much or top the original film, yet matches that of what made the original great. And as a fan, it's hard not to love it. My final verdict for Blade Runner is 100%. It's an untouchable, one of my favorite films. While it has problems, I think that it's so important. And I say that a lot in films that I really like. I, I could watch it anytime, um, any version of it, 100%. My verdict for Blade Runner 2049 falls a little bit short, but only so. I'm going to give Blade Runner uh, 2049 a 92%. I know it's crazy. It, it took me almost two years to see this film, especially noticing, noticing my uh, fondness for Blade Runner. And I definitely wish I had had the chance to see it on the big screen. Uh, one last thing tonight. What the fuck was Harrison Ford wearing? It's like he only signs on to these movies so he can bring his own clothes and wear a t-shirt and jeans. I mean, I get it because the sequel only truly works with Harrison Ford being in the film, blah, blah, blah. But it doesn't It feel like for most of the movie they just shot Harrison Ford trying to escape making the movie. Like, I, I can't believe he didn't die at the end. Like in major, major spoiler alert if you haven't seen Star Wars, Star Wars, where he's basically like, no more of these fucking movies, kill me. I guess he likes Blade Runner more than that, which, I mean, so do I. Blade Runner is better this week. That means we need a Blade Runner 3, The Quickening, starring more robot sex and likely, really, could someone answer for me, like, Marriott was a replicant, right? I'm guessing since she hangs out with all the replicants and the replicant army, 
Uh, but that was never explained. Also, at 2 hours and 28 minutes, there's a weird as fuck cut where the camera begins to fade and it just cuts abruptly. I had to rewatch it back a few times to make sure like it wasn't sea spray or something I mistook for a fade, but lo and behold, there it was at two hours and 28 minutes, Harrison Ford, camera starts to fade out, the awkwardest fucking cut I've ever seen maybe in a movie like this ever. So that means Blade Runner 24-9, you're going down to 89%. Um, but hey, it was like, it's like 89% uh, worth watching, 10% not, 1% worth abstaining. Should probably do another sequel at this point. Oh my god, what am I saying? Uh, can lightning strike twice? Maybe not. There's definitely room for the Blade Runner story to grow. And wasn't it weirdly cool that the film ended, like, sort of both the theatrical and the director's cut? Like, Kay is dead, but things are happy, like Tears and Rain guys, remember that? Like, tears. All right, next time on My Movies Better, I will be having a couple of guests with me. Evan and John from the Dork Web podcast will be joining me, and we will be doing a very special Reb Brown double feature, Your the Hunter from the Future, and Robo War. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Always remember to like, to share, to subscribe, and all that other good stuff join us on facebook follow us on twitter and uh please review give us five stars we love that and we love you i'm kevin james harden thank you for listening to my movies better and have a great night experience to live in fear, isn't it? That's what it is to be a slave. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tenhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain.
Welcome to my movies better. The triple threat battle of cinema. Created by Kevin Harden and Russell Stearns. Too bad you will die. Only I can control this battle. How could you have done this? Jim! I can't believe you committed suicide. Are you Fuji? Fujiyama? He's a friend of mine from school. A friend? Was the party over? Uh, well, it's just winding down. Hi. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Mr. Birthday Party. No, it's no problem. It's good to see you. Adventure. <laughs> Excitement. <laughs> Frankly, my dear, I don't give it. You can't handle the butthead. I am the father. Just stand on it, I guess. Long as she can. I love the spell. Mrs. Hogwallop. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Come with me if you want to live. See what happens, Lebowski? You see what happens? You got the wrong guy. I'm the dude, man. Your name's Lebowski, Lebowski. How do I look? Bring out today!